Hey everybody, welcome back to A Thousand Names for God. My name is Rick Alexander. Feels good to be doing another podcast after a long break. I've been doing a ton of writing. I've been doing a ton of recording, actually. I've been talking on here a little bit about this lecture series that I have coming up about transformation. And in that lecture series, I really take a two-pronged approach to the content. So I'm looking at psychological and spiritual aspects of the process of human transformation, but I'm talking about it, one, from the standpoint of a person who is deeply interested in transformative work myself, and then also from the standpoint of somebody in the healing profession, the helping profession, as a guide, a coach, somebody that's interested in creating the kinds of containers that aid in the transformational process. And I've been talking about this for a long time. I'm going to put the link to sign up to get notified when I drop it. As I said, it's actually already been recorded. It's in editing right now. And um, so that's a little bit out of my hand. So as long as that takes, um, whenever that gets done, I'll definitely release it. But if you're interested in transformational work, either as a coach, as a guide, or as a person in yourself, and if you're listening to this podcast, it's likely that you are in some respects, then you can sign up for that and all of those people, it's not guaranteeing that you're going to get it or anything. It's just going to give me a list of people to launch it to. And of course, I'm going to give everybody on that list a discount. The only other thing that I have to say before we jump into the show here is that I do have a couple of spots for one-on-one coaching. So if you're interested in working with me in that kind of an environment, I will link up the application process. Then we'll jump on a Zoom call and we'll just see if it's a good fit. All right, without further ado, learning to let go. So when we talk about letting go on the spiritual path, we're talking about letting go of anger, letting go of lust, letting go of perfectionism, letting go of the need to change or to manipulate something to suit you. And one thing that the spiritual path does is it asks us over and over to let go because it's only in letting go of what we think we are and what we think we need that we're able to find out what is or what lies beyond ourselves. And one of the, I would say, benefits of the spiritual path in the first place is that it does show you the world that exists beyond yourself. Because you're finite, right? And you're going to die and you're going to denature, you could say. But the spiritual path says that there's something about you that isn't. There's something about you that's more real than what we consider real. So in order to talk about letting go, I want to first sort of frame this conversation in terms of one of the most primal animal blueprints. And what I mean by primal is that it is foundational to our evolution, which means it is deeply lodged in our tendencies, in our behaviors, in our patterns, the patterns that we use every day to navigate our lives. And so in some sense, what the spiritual path calls us on is a path of transcendence. It's a path of transcending the patterns, the things that we use to navigate our lives. Now, the depth of the ingrained pattern also means that if at any point we want to overcome it, right? And when I say depth, I mean it's a, it's a deep animalistic pattern. It's a deep animalistic craving, and it's tied to the survival of our species at some point in history. And so when there's that kind of ingrained depth, it also means that if we ever want to overcome it, there's going to be a great deal of effort required. And I would even say a great deal of moral courage, So the blueprint that I want to talk about first is to pursue pleasure and to avoid pain, right? This is the, this is the most basic primal animal blueprint to pursue pleasure and to avoid pain. But if you start to look at it closely, right, you'll start to see that there's something interesting. The two pleasure and pain, they're merely separate sides of the same coin. They're what in Hindu literature are called a pair of opposites. These opposites occur at the level of mind in this literature. And the level of mind is 
even below what they would consider to be booty, which is like your the, the booty mind, which is like your intellect, your sort of higher knowledge, your higher knowing, what you might have heard in the New Age space is your higher self. Well, the pair of opposites that we have to transcend, they occur in the level of lower mind, right? Even lower than that. And so these opposites not only come together, right? They're, they're different sides of the same coin, you might say, but they also have to be transcended together if greater consciousness is going to prevail. So when you pursue pleasure, and if you really watch yourself, you'll notice how difficult it actually is to hold on to. You'll also notice that there's a moment when it does satisfy, and I wanna talk about both of these things here. Right? This is the, the orgasm, for example. This is the satisfaction of the release, the exhale, the letting go. But the orgasm can quickly turn into compulsive masturbation because the desire for the comfort of the pleasure is so short-lived, it turns into something you need to keep going back to in order to get the release. Thus, it quickly turns into pain. The pain of not having, the pain of needing. It's the pain of lack, right? The pain of unfulfilled desire. And this is the pattern, right? This is the loop that most of us live within in the modern world if we never transcend this primal blueprint of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. Now, I should also say that we have what I would consider to be our major agreed-upon religion in the world today, which is consumerism. Now, I think this is unconscious because we don't tend to frame our habits up in religious terms, but if you look at the world, it is consumerism that carries our religious instinct. And one of the things that, to me, strikes me as somewhat dangerous about that is that consumerism promises that there's always something else to satisfy outside of ourselves. And thus, we have something else to crave. It keeps us in the loop of being constantly unfulfilled. And so for the modern person that has made consumerism their religion, and I've certainly lived in this myself, and, and it's quite a lot to try, to try to get through it, right? To try to live the world in a different way because we're so, we, we're born in this framework. And in this framework where consumerism is the religion, I think politicians and lobbyists and marketers and business tycoons are the clergy and malls and, you know, shopping malls and virtual worlds on social media are our temples. And a simple life where one lacks nothing and needs nothing, striving to be whole unto themselves, well, I think that's our heresy. Because you'll notice what happens when you start to pull away from the major religion. You'll notice how people treat you like you're a heretic. So when we live from a fear-based place, and what that means is like that fear is the basis for the decision that we're making, we find ourselves more and more often returning to the diseases of character that are most commonly associated with lack. Right? This is greed, hate, delusion, ignorance. And this is because if we feel at a fundamental level that there's not enough, we're going to grow more and more egocentric, believing we must take when we can. See, this is the problem of the fear operating system. I talked about this a little bit at the beginning of the pandemic because there was that like toilet paper shortage, if you all remember that. But there was nothing actually wrong with the supply chain. It's that fear had entered the scene. We all grow egocentric, meaning, oh, I've got to take, I've got to get mine because I'm scared that there isn't enough. And so now we just create a world of lack. And so sin, in this case, causes us to, as Martin Luther said, fold inward on ourselves. Now, to sin is from the Greek term hamartia, and that means to miss the mark or to err. To be focused solely on what the self can gain is to miss the mark, it is to err, when it comes to maximizing the human experience, because of course, this life isn't only about what we can get. Now, I don't think consumerism will allow you to believe that, but if you take a step back, you start to realize that when our chief concern becomes finding today's pleasure, and our focus becomes to satisfy the separate self, we can't flourish. Because then greed, hate, delusion, and ignorance cause us to become so consumed with getting what we want that we never stop to realize that a major aspect of our lives, of our personalities, and of our soul 
actually only unfold, only flourish under the conditions of service and of giving. In this way, we can easily thwart the unfolding of our own consciousness, right? Because our consciousness needs certain conditions to unfold within. Through interacting with the world in certain ways, you start to get insights about what's true about the world. So the lotus flower, which I'm sure you've seen in a lot of Eastern art, is symbolic of the process of a spiritual waking up because it rises from the mud, right, through the dark abyss below, and then stretches toward the light above. But also because when it gets there, it opens itself completely to receive. Most people, you'll notice, if they're living out of this primal blueprint, they get caught in the pleasure and pain cycle, and they have a very difficult time receiving something when it's offered to them. And that's true even if they need the help, right? Like if you need help from another person. And it's because we cannot receive and clutch at the same time, right? The hands are too closed. Thus the lotus, like a human, if at its best, is both grounded with its roots below and nourished by the light above. And it holds the tension between these two worlds as we do. It prospers, though it has no need to grasp. And the symbolism of the part of the lotus that's coming through the mud, that's what we're talking about here. This is the spirit learning to navigate the animal kingdom, the animal realm of which we are a part, and learning to navigate it and to reach up toward the light. And that's why it's symbolic of waking up. So you might have just noticed a relevant example of this because we just passed through the holiday season. I went and saw Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol with Danielle and with some friends, like I saw a, uh, an adaptation of it at the Denver uh, Art Center. And the character Scrooge from A Christmas Carol is the perfect archetype of that hardened personality with an inability to let go. If you ever get a chance to read the book, Dickens describes Scrooge as a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as a flint, secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. Now, the thing that must not be overlooked about Scrooge, about this character, is his wit and his intelligence. This is central to understanding how this archetype plays out and how it works. Because you'll notice throughout the story how well he justifies his grasping and his clutching with logic. See, there's always a reasonable explanation if one can wield logic well. But logic is always in service of something, right? It's got to be organized. It's kind of like what happens when science carries our religious impulse, when it becomes scientism, and then the thing we worship is science. It's like, well, science has to be it's a system, so it has, to know, it has to know where to be directed. It's in service to something. It's in service to, a, to the values of the person that points it, right? It's like a tool in that way. And so he's the perfect example of what happens when logos, the discriminating element, is not in service to eros, right, i.e. love. So logic without love can still make perfect sense on paper and be an absolutely miserable fate to march toward, right? So you'll notice with cynical people, for example, that they often have airtight logic to justify their disposition. Right? They could win any argument. And yet, what is it that they've actually won? What do we get by holding so tightly to the beliefs we think keep us safe, right? The beliefs that keep us from opening our hearts to the world. The belief that there's not enough, that we have to take to get what we want. Do we actually get enough through that mentality? Of course not. We get more lack, because right? it's a universal principle that what is in our hearts becomes the guiding spirit in our lives. And so the book of Proverbs says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. But the heart, remember, I'm using this term heart a lot. If you look back in ancient literature and the wisdom traditions, the heart is not solely the organ, right? It's the totality of one's feelings and intellect and psychological disposition. In Hindu literature, there's a term called shraddha. And sometimes it gets translated as faith, but I don't think that's actually quite right. It's more like the essence of the core of the personality, the innate 
personality structure, or you might say the core of what's coming from the soul into the personality. In the Bhagavad Gita, which I'm going to quote later because it's uh, essentially a manual on learning to let go, uh, it says that a man is what his shraddha is, right? In other words, and I would say woman too, right? In other words, the one who can let go, who can give freely, understanding that it all has to come back around, is the recipient of his own personality. See, this is the deal. We sometimes think of karma, I mean, you can think about karma in a lot of different ways, but one way to think about it is that you are living in your own psychic disposition and what you project out into the world, you're authoring energy into your existence, and that's what you're living in. You can notice the breath, for example, right? In order to keep living, you have to let it go. Letting it go is the only way that you get it back. So abundant shraddha, abundant life. The oyster that Scrooge lived within was built because of his basic disposition toward it all. And this is independent of how well he could actually justify it. And I think this is what's really important to remember. And I want to say that I'm I'm creating this content. I'm thinking about this a lot because I myself have these struggles with cynicism, so to speak. I feel like I've seen a lot of brutality in the world. And it's easy for me to justify a cynical disposition. And if I am honest with myself and I really sit back and look, I start to ask myself, like, well, what is it that I think I'm actually winning here? Does this attitude that walls us off from the free flow of energetic exchange between us and others actually give us protection in some way? Hardly, because nobody here makes it out alive. So like Scrooge, the walls that keep others out also keep us in. They keep us self-contained and solitary as an oyster, unable to experience the full measure of human existence. We cannot get more than we need by believing that there is not enough. Right? So we can't get to abundance from a place of lack. And what's more is that our grasp for pleasure can easily turn into a sort of physiological greed, where what we take is not money or bread, but rather we rape our own life force, our own vitality, right? taking to satisfy the impulse, but then leaving ourselves with less and less over time. And this, of course, leads us right back to pain, right back to suffering. And this is what actually the Buddha meant with his first noble truth, which has actually been translated as something such as all of life is suffering. And I think I've even been a little bit guilty of saying it that way, but he didn't mean that all of life is suffering, but rather what he meant is that all of life exists within the conditions that make suffering inevitable. In other words, the transient attempt to satisfy can only lead to pain. The Pali word used in the first noble truth is dukkha. This has been likened to a wheel whose axle is not quite on center. It might roll smoothly now, but the lump, the bump, the suffering, it is coming. And no matter how hard you grasp, this is true. What makes it a truth is that there's not a story you can tell yourself which is actually going to change the reality that you live in. And so if you sit with this, and I would say don't just believe it, but really inspect it in yourself, right? Start to notice each of your desires and the fruit that they yield. And what you'll start to see is that every grasp toward pleasure is inevitably going to leave you wanting more. And so then you have a choice. You can grasp at what cannot be attained, or you can stop grasping and see what happens when that particular desire dissolves or the pattern dissolves and the desire leaves. And I want to say something because I just brought up this idea of not just believing it, but just inspecting it in yourself. Injecting awareness is part of the process of learning to let go. I was talking to my friend Jessica, who is the podcast uh, host of the Shadow Work Library, and she is one of the owners of the Special Forces Experience. And we were talking about the the subject of astrology, and she was like talking about how, you know, it doesn't make sense. We, we frame it up in terms of like, do you believe in this? And as I thought about it, it's like, yeah, this is what some of my problem with this like belief culture, it's like tell ourselves a story culture. It's like, 
you believing in it, that has nothing to do with it. Are you engaging with it, right? And this is what I would say, like when it comes to something like astrology or, or anything like that, right? It's not about whether you believe in it, but do you want to engage with the patterns of the celestial bodies that you're in, in a way that allows you to derive meaning from it? This is the way that we work with these things. This idea of do I believe it is really secondary to how do I engage with it? So again, you end up with this choice then, right? When you start watching it, you can either grasp at what cannot be attained. Once you see it cannot be attained. Like once you see you can't keep that moment, you know, you can't keep that exhale. Then you have this place where you say, well, I can either grasp at it or... I can bear the burden of the pain of not getting it and then see what happens to replace it. And if you do that over time, you get that feeling again, the feeling of letting go, the exhale, the release. And this is what is actually meant by the term nirvana. It is the exhale. It's a state in which you are in the perpetual letting go. It's cosmic freedom. Now, in reference to learning how to let go of the grasping, Ramdas one time in a lecture at uh, Naropa University said, don't just do something, stand there. So when the impulse to grasp arises, the addictive tendency, when the desire that feels it has to be fulfilled arises, don't just do something, stand there, watch. Our hunger the primal hunger that forces us to leave the bliss of the stars and incarnate in human form so that past karmic entanglements may be resolved, gets inadequately channeled into a hunger for pleasure, and so the karmic entanglement actually just grows stronger. Dr. Carl Jung, the Swiss psychologist, who I think almost everybody's familiar with at this point because his work is becoming really popular, very influential in my own work, he summarizes the way that this hunger, when it gets um, used for the lower nature, right? these things that occur in the lower mind, he writes about what happens. He says, hunger makes the soul into a beast that devours the unbearable and is then poisoned by it. And then he goes on to say, my friends, it is wise to nourish the soul. Otherwise, you will breed dragons and devils in your heart. And as Proverbs say, as a man thinketh in his heart so is he. When the pursuit of pleasure becomes the aim of our deepest hunger, our deepest craving, it pulls, a, pulls us away from our own self and we become someone that we don't even recognize, right? Notice a person who has given themselves fully and completely to their hunger for pleasure, right? They become a shell of who they used to be. We can look at somebody that's had a really bad struggle with drugs and, and, has kind of given themselves over to it, right? Over time, you see them, it's like they're not at all who they used to be. And I don't mean that pejoratively because we all have our struggles and we have our things that, that take us away from ourselves. But I'm just saying to notice it. Notice what happens if, in fact, you give yourself to it rather than do the very difficult thing and bear it, right? Bear the hunger. If you're always convinced that your answers are external to yourself, then you have no choice but to live in a state of perpetual lack. You can never know who you really are if you are merely the sum of all your cravings. So the yogis preach non-attachment because attachment to sense objects produces infinitely less joy than the space one finds if one has the courage to let go of their own preferences. Right? So that means that freedom isn't about manipulating life to give you what you want. I talk about this a lot because it's been kind of a revelation in my own life. But freedom is rather about not needing to change anything at all. It's about learning to let go. In yogic psychology, they talk about this idea of nature craving nature. So the nature of the senses, your senses, right, craves its fulfillment in sense objects without any care for the being behind the nature. But with non-attachment, you can watch nature ceaselessly go on craving and trying to satisfy, needing, wanting, desiring, craving, and trying to satisfy. But don't just do something. Stand there. Watch. The yogic literature describes the human mind like an ocean. 
they say that thoughts come through like waves. They don't have a starting point. That's just merely the comings and goings of nature. But as we identify with the thoughts, with that particular wave that comes through on any given day, I'm mad, I'm hungry, I'm lonely, we're tossed about and carried wherever nature wills at that moment. And so when we stop attaching to the waves, to the thoughts, when we learn to let them go, the water slowly but surely begins to settle. Now, this is one reason for meditation, actually. Because if you can focus on only one point, like if you, maybe we've talked about this on here, I'm not sure, but it's very, we have a directive mind, which means that you can tell your mind what to do, but you cannot tell it what not to do. And the example people usually use is the pink elephant. So right now, don't think about a pink elephant. Don't think about a pink elephant. Very difficult, right? You can't tell your mind what not to do. So you can't tell it not to attach to the waves that come through. This is why we use meditation, because it focuses us, focuses our attention to only one point, the breath, the mantra, the divine incarnation, right? whatever it is that we're focusing on. And then we slowly stop getting caught up in the ceaseless ocean. We stop identifying with the waves. And then this is where it starts to get interesting is that our true self Right, the unborn and undying self, the self with a capital S, the Westerner's soul or the Hindu's Atman, is at the bottom of the ocean. We have to see through the waves. We cannot see the ground, right? as Aldous Huxley says, the divine ground of being, because we are quite convinced that we are whatever set of waves, whatever set of desires, whatever set of thoughts happens to be rolling through at that time. And so as the path progresses, the waves have to be let go of so that the ocean will settle and your true self will be revealed. So many in the West, I've noticed that we, we hear the idea of non-attachment and we think of this indifference, right? We think of apathy. If I do not want what I desire, then who am I? If I let go of who I think I am, then who am I? What will I be like? Well, that is the question. But I would suggest that you did not incarnate for no reason at all. And further, I'd bet that if you let go of who you think you have to be, who you really are would spontaneously emerge. After all, life took up form as you for a reason. And here we see Christ's injunction that unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, by the way, Christ says is within. Who were you in your most childlike innocence? Back then, did you do nothing at all? Would you really retire into apathy if you let go of all the things you believe you must change and must manipulate? Or, and this can be difficult, is that a story you tell yourself so that you can maintain the desire? And now we're starting to move into closer to why we have these desires. Right? We tell ourselves the story so we can maintain the desire so that you don't have to let go of what you've convinced yourself makes you worthy or capable. But who were you before you believed you had to earn your spot at the table or before you learned that something about you was wrong or broken or would have to be modified? I'm betting that there was something pure about you. I'm betting if you think hard enough, you can still remember that purity. How you did not have to earn it or do anything, but it just emerged. I remember catching lightning bugs with my grandfather when I was young, and I just remember being so delighted by this illumined nature that I would hold in my hands. And I remember also when we began to build a bow out of wood, and I was just so fascinated that I was the kind of creature that could do such a thing, build a vessel that could take me across an ocean. Perhaps the biggest travesty of growing old is that we believe that just because our fundamental activities change, our fundamental essence must be stifled. Now, would my life be worse or better if I maintain that delight and that fascination with my work now? See, the two aren't in competition unless, of course, we're holding on to some idea or some belief or some story that makes us think that they are. So after a long enough time of holding on to our desire and living within that worn out cycle, and this is uh, particularly true, I would say, with like addictive tendencies, what happens is that we'll naturally start to see how little it actually satisfies us. 
And after a while, we may even grow to resent the compulsion that we feel powerless to stop. So it's here that we see that we do not, and this is important to recognize, we do not want the thing itself, right? The object of desire per se, but rather we want to want. We want to desire because if we are not the slave to desire, then we do not know who we are. Now, this is a subtle difference that takes introspection to see, but the human being was made to serve and to love. And if nothing suitable presents itself, we become indentured servants to a lesser good. And over time, if we settle long enough for that lesser good, we begin to convince ourselves that the higher order things of reality are not available to us, or perhaps we convince ourselves that they're not even real. We base our choice in airtight logic, and then the divinity that is actually our birthright eludes us, because when logic is not in the service of love, we close off. We become less of who we're here to be. The peace that is ours by virtue of what we are becomes unrealistic to logic without love. And this is why it is called the peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace that we cannot have so long as we want to want something outside of ourselves. So in the yogic traditions, which you'll hear me talk about more and more, are really interesting because they have all of these different paths because they know that there are all of these different psychological dispositions. And so there are different ways to reach God based on who you are and what you're like. So there's one called the jhana yoga path, and this is the path of knowledge. And this is notoriously understood as actually the most difficult to walk because it relies on the mantra neti neti, which means not this, not this. This path requires the tedious examination of every single aspect of your life until at last you can conclude that I am not this and I am not this. And then the logic follows that if you can extricate yourself from everything that you are not, you will at last come to the recognition of who you really are. Now, I want to talk about this because, as I said, the Bhagavad Gita is essentially, it's a handbook in learning to let go in the spiritual path to find God. And so there's a point in the Bhagavad Gita, and what, what's going on here for people that aren't familiar with this, is that there's a warrior, Arjuna, and again, I'll do more content on this in the future, but there's a warrior, Arjuna, and he's about to lead his people into battle for righteousness. And the whole thing is an allegory for the inner battle that takes place between good and evil or righteousness and wrong or something like that. And Krishna is the divine incarnation, right? This is the, this is the avatar of God Most High. Like in the West, we have Christ in this particular tradition, it's Krishna. And when he's talking to Arjuna, he's talking to him about the different paths of letting go, right? As I said, this, this extricating yourself intellectually is a very tedious and very difficult task because it can't be faked. It can't be made up. It's like, am I my hand? No, I'm not my hand. Okay, move on. It's like, no, you have to sit with that until you actually understand that you're not that thing. So first he says, just allow yourself to be immersed in me completely, right? This is Christ within, you could say. And then he says, if you can't do that, then just focus on me completely. This is what I was saying with the meditation focus, right? You focus on the avatar constantly and only, and then you'll start to let go of the waves. You'll start to realize that you're not the momentary feeling, sensation, thought, thing that you think you are that's arising in any given moment. He says, so if you can't be immersed in me, and then you also can't focus on me in a sort of single-pointed manner because, I mean, look at our world today and how difficult it is for us to hold our attention on anything, right? Because our mind is very split between all of these different things that arise, social media and all of the various emergencies we're constantly in the middle of. He says, well, if you can't do that, then I've got a couple other paths for you. So I'm going to read these three paragraphs, these three verses, 10, 11, 12, and chapter 12. He says, if you find that you're not disciplined enough to concentrate in this manner, transform all your worldly actions into worship and do them for my sake. Turn your force of habit to your own advantage. Make a habit of dedicating all your actions to divinity. In this way, you become my instrument and your mind gradually becomes purified, which will lead you to me. So in other words, what he's saying there is if you can't 
be immersed in me and you can't focus, then everything that you do, give it to me. Give it to divinity. Make it as a sacrifice. Make your life a living sacrifice. And slowly but surely, that will allow you to let go. It'll allow you to purify. He goes on, but if you cannot even do that, then pursue an alternative that is equally powerful. Take refuge in me. Subdue your mind and give up desire for the fruits of your actions. Right? So now what we're learning to let go of is the outcome. Because the Gita kind of says, you know, you have a right to your actions, but you don't have a right to what they actually yield because you don't know that. All you can do is follow your shraddha. All you can do is what you think is right. This was sort of the guiding principle of Mahatma Gandhi's life, actually. And when he died and all he had was like four things, you know, he had like his sandals, his glasses, his, his robe and a copy of the Bhagavad Gita. And then finally, he says in verse 12, knowledge is better than mere performance of rituals. Meditation is better than knowledge. And abandoning the fruits of one's action is better than meditation. Why? Because peace immediately follows the giving up of expectations. Right? We talked about that on a, lot, a lot on this podcast because expectations essentially give the world about a billion ways to let you down and only one way to satisfy you. And of course, the world never agreed to your ideals or your expectations. And so you put yourself in a place of constant lack when you go around you know, either expecting yourself out of other people or expecting that what you do is actually going to yield the fruit. And so what he's saying is, give it up. Find the strength to give it up. It's not the kind of freedom you get from manipulating your life. It's the kind of freedom you get from not having to. The term yoga itself means to yoke or to bind together. Hatha yoga, the practice most commonly seen in the West, like what we do here, is the practice of binding together body and mind. It's becoming single, becoming one. And most people who have not taken the time to let go of their most basic animal blueprint, they're not one, they're many. They live their lives as a subcommittee of personalities, motivations, and uninspected desires. They want this thing today and then that thing tomorrow. And because of that, they suffer endlessly. They do not really know what they want because they have not let go of what they think they cannot live without. Thus, they have not transcended the pattern. They still believe that they are the transitory wave, caught in an ocean of endless opposites. They grow desperate and they're looking for salvation. They're looking for something to serve. And this is why they end up resenting it over time. This is why people end up resenting their addiction because it can't give the liberation. It can't give the salvation that the craving promises. I'm going to talk more about this in a future episode. So I'm going to let this idea go. But just for now, hold this idea that, that until we're one, you know, until we've become purified enough, until we know who we are, until we can see through the waves, we're many. And this is also the knife's edge with letting go of pleasure on the spiritual path that I want to talk about because pleasure can heal, right? Pleasure can bring ecstasy. The Greek ecstasis means to stand outside of oneself. It can help you for a moment to put down the everyday experience of being yourself and open you up to a wider reality. This is what ecstasis does. It breaks the ego wide open and it shows you that there's much more than what you're focusing on in this immediate moment. And so this is not an attack on pleasure, right? As, I've, as you'll often see in some like literalist interpretations of religion, you'll see these attacks on pleasure. This is, this is to miss the point, right? This is to focus on the wrong thing. This is to say that the pattern of serving safety, seeking pleasure, and avoiding pain has no liberation for the person who thinks they need it because that person lives in a state of lack that pleasure cannot deliver them from. So it's only once you're not attached, right, in a state of unattachment of what the yogis would call holy indifference, that you're actually free to appreciate and use pleasure without it causing a deeper karmic entanglement, without it leading to pain. Because consumerism is our major religion, especially in the West, because I think we're kind of at the tip of that spear, it's not coincidental to me that the main mythology worshipped in the West is of a person crucified. Because the, the cross presents a vertical and a horizontal axis, right? So it's the meeting place between heaven and earth. But with 
Christ's wrists nailed to each side of the cross, the hands are clutching nothing, right? They're wide open as if to receive, even if that means receiving a world of immeasurable pain, because this is what we have to know is that when we begin to accept, when we let go of our desire to manipulate life to give us what we want, we actually have to accept that it doesn't necessarily meet us at our preferences, right? So Christ is wide open, but what he's receiving is a world of immeasurable pain, of shame, of heartache, of the deepest sort of fears that we all have as human beings, right? To be splayed wide open, naked, vulnerable, accepting no matter what. So Christ holds the tension of these painful opposites that humanity cannot. With his arms and hands wide open, he holds on to nothing at all. St. Paul in Philippians says of Christ, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And then he goes on to speak of this canonic love. And this kenosis, the word kenosis, is a kind of love that is a self-emptying. It is to spend yourself in this life, to give yourself completely over to this world. This is what is being said in the Gita, right? Give all of the fruits of all of your actions, give it all to God. Give it all up. Let it all go. A complete letting go in order to serve. Thus, he gave himself to the world fully, and in doing so, inherits the full kingdom. This, too, is why during his temptations in the desert, Satan offered him all of the worldly power possible in order to thwart his path. See, it's here that we see that the fullness of God is shown as the antithesis of all of the power and pleasure that we think that we need. The path toward transcending the opposites is directly in front of us because we're in these opposites all the time. And we hear, we see, we just got through a Christmas season, Christianity is kind of everywhere. But the problem is that singing songs on Sunday morning and listening to a motivational talk is not enough to get you there. And I want to be clear here because it is enough to start, right? I'm not saying it's not. I'm not saying it's not good. I'm just saying that at some, at some point, you have to pick up the cross yourself. You have to bear the psychological crucifixion of opposites until transcendence occurs. The psychological mechanism at work here is called the transcendent function. And basically what that says is that if you have enough strength to bear the pull in both directions without caving to your own will, right? You're basically stuck between the want to satisfy the desire and the desire for the higher order reality. You will eventually be rewarded. You'll move into greater consciousness where those so-called opposites end up reconciled within you. Many do not move into greater consciousness because they reach a pair of opposites that they cannot bear. They shrink from the cross and they return to the primordial blueprint, hoping to satisfy the urge and relieve the unbearable pressure of the opposites. The binding together of body and mind and soul and spirit in Hatha Yoga is actually only one step of a much larger process of binding in the yogic path or it's actually the third step, I would say, of an infinite process of binding. So the overall goal of the yoga path is to bind together your desire and divine will, so that the two are no longer separate, so that you're not many, but one. And this is the only way to fully recognize the divine ground of being, right? Because the true self is hidden behind the desire for lesser things. No longer wanting things to be different than they are, you'll be able to exhale. You can let go. You can be free. No longer operating as a separate entity with desires that make demands of the rest of the world to satisfy you, you begin, as Lao Tzu says, to flow as life flows, bound together with God, with the divine ground of being, with the you that rests under the waves. How could you be lonely? The recognition of love, in this sense, capital L, archetypal love, is the end of all loneliness. No longer wanting anything other than divine will, what is there to crave? And what's more is that it's unfolding right in front of you at this very moment. As Catholic priest Richard Rohr suggests, God comes to you disguised as your life. And I would add, it's you that wants it to be otherwise. Your hunger comes from your soul. Young again reminds us that if you were one with your soul, your hunger would lead you to freedom. Your hunger drove you into incarnation. It's here 
for a reason. And what that means is that you've already made it to the show. There's nothing you can attain that's going to make you more worthy of your life. This is something in the West we really struggle with. I mean, there's nowhere to get. You're already here. Something I've been saying in my content a lot is this is your life and it's happening now. But put another way, what happens is what you would hunger for if you let go of the thinking that something else would somehow satisfy you. Typically, it's the attainment of pleasure that produces the largest karmic entanglement because that's when we've convinced ourselves that all of our grasping really did pay off, right? This is the moment of exhale, the slight moment of freedom. Remember, not all of life is suffering. At some point, the wheel is going to roll just fine. It is the inevitable coming back around, the inevitable fulfillment of the pleasure-seeking pattern that will eventually lead to pain. And so remember, it's like, you know, you crave something and then you do it and it works. The craving is satisfied. You get the release and that's great. The problem is you think now that it actually is going to work going forward, but you know it's not. You know you got to keep going back there. Pretty soon, the exhale is going to be over. The last three noble truths are the, really the good news, right? It's worth mentioning also, I think, that noble is an interesting word to describe an axiom. The way I like to think about it is like the noble gases. Those are classified as such because upon their discovery, it was believed that they do not react or bind to other elements. Don't just do something. Stand there. The second noble truth is the cause of this suffering. It's called dependent origination. And I'm going to do a future show on this, I think, and I, I used it in a paper I just wrote, so I don't want to go too deep into it here. But the point of it is basically that suffering and craving are arising together. They're not separate in reality, only in appearance. The third noble truth is the fact that there can be an end to suffering. Because everything in a reality arises together, we can find the cessation of suffering by abstaining from the cause. And then the fourth noble truth goes on to describe the eightfold path, which you may or may not have heard of before, but that is the path that somebody can walk to reach that final liberation, the final exhale, the final letting go. Also want to point out here that this path is a lot easier to talk about and describe than it is to walk, right? The Ability to talk about letting go and actually letting go of your preferences, desires, needs, things that you think you have to have is actually pretty difficult. And I think this is why we'd prefer to worship Christ rather than walk in his path, honestly. It's kind of like Nietzsche said, there's only one true Christian and he died on the cross. And then G.K. Chesterton said something interesting too. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried, i.e. religion in the modern world is not dying because its truth is not truth. That has nothing to do with it. It's dying because its truth has been repeatedly dragged down to lower levels of consciousness by those who could not let go of their need for self-satisfaction and thus could not ascend Jacob's ladder to heaven, who could not bear to let go of what they were clutching long enough to be splayed open between the opposites, to be ushered in to greater consciousness. And when we can't do that, we just drag it down to us, and then that's what we project onto our congregation or our audience. And what's more is that there's no amount of telling yourself to let go that's actually going to get you there, and this is important too. This is why reducing mythologies to moral teachings fail so miserably. For sexual desire, for example, right? You can't suppress it by telling yourself to. Because what you suppress unconsciously asserts itself in your mind as the highest value. This is why we have a culture that worships sex, for example, as if it were the highest form of love, when in reality it's like probably third or fourth in the order of things that are true and good and beautiful. What I suggest is not force, but awareness. Inject awareness into your desire. Notice how your desires make you feel. Notice which desires leave you feeling less in the fullness of who you are. Because you'll only actually begin on this path when it's the next natural thing for you to do. When we inject awareness into something, we cannot help but yield to the demands of greater consciousness over time. Because if we don't, it will tear us apart. 
I wrote in my latest book that the problem with having two paths is actually that the right one and the easy one are often different. And if we don't travel the right one, it will internally eviscerate us. The desire for pleasure cannot be thwarted by human will. You must become single. Your will is part of the same nature as the craving in yogic psychology. You must bind your will to the will of something higher than yourself. And honestly, that just takes time. And so if you inject consciousness into every act of craving and every act of desire, you will slowly but surely find your path home, the path to who you really are, perfected in the eyes of God, you could say. Don't just do something. Stand there. Watch. Aldous Huxley says in the perennial philosophy that liberation might be defined as the process of waking up out of the nonsense, nightmares, and illusory pleasures of what is ordinarily called real life into the awareness of eternity. In this place, free from needing anything at all, you're free to enjoy everything. Free from needing to change anything at all, you're free to accept everything. Free from the need to grasp, you enter into the eternal letting go. But you will not let go of the nonsense, the nightmare, and the illusory pleasure until you're ready to. You won't let go until you can't stand the fruit of holding on. You won't let go until it's simply the next harmonious thing for you to do.